medical skills for the EP professional. Should it be mandatory? Should they be improved? Should we have a paramedic embedded in the team? Big questions this week with Paul Stewart of Platinum Oak. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Welcome to the Circuit Magazine podcast. I'm Pelham Rowe, and this week I'm joined by Sean West, John Moss, and Elijah Shaw. We're talking medical skills for the executive protection practitioner, and we're going to be interviewing Paul Stewart of Platinum Oak. Big topic, should we have embedded paramedics? What's the role of a tactical medic? And has the EP professional truly forgotten all of their skills? Elijah, what's your take on this? Surely post-COVID, we're going to go back to thinking about this topic. Uh, I mean, I think we're thinking about it even during COVID. The subject of medical skills is one that everybody says, of course we need it. But then the practicality is, are we actually preparing ourselves for in the field if something was to go wrong? Uh, Particularly on the U.S. side, all the guys talk about guns and marksmanships and firearm skills. But it's, you know, way more likely that we're going to be using medical skills, a trip and fall, a a headache, you know, you know, something uh, nausea versus uh, actually getting into a shootout. Absolutely. No, these are these are key skills, less glamorous, perhaps. Uh, Sean, do you feel this way? Are these less glamorous skills that perhaps some people in the f- sector have forgotten? I don't think they've been forgotten. They are essential. It's one of the most essential facets of an APO post protection operative. I'm looking forward to hearing the takes off the podcast because you know it's one of them things that all the teams I've worked on, it's a huge skill fit with medical training. You need to do it year in, year out. You know, it's not something you do. I think the qualification lasts three years or something like that. We need to be doing this refreshing regularly. If your principal collapses us down with a heart attack, you don't really put your hand up and say, hey, what do I do? Who do I call now? You need to have learned and refreshed these skills along the way. Absolutely. And if and if COVID has taught us anything, uh, we used to say, okay, maybe bring a medical doctor into an area where there are no hospitals. But actually, big crises could mean you can't get to a hospital even in an area you normally anticipate. Uh, John, do you, do, you, do you see this topic of embedding a medic or embedding an MD, you know, increasing or, or, or is this just a COVID thing? It is a COVID thing. It's definitely brought the subject into mainstream thinking and especially amongst those who can afford it, right? So with high net worths, VIPs, and of course, uh, people who are security assigned to them by the state. So yeah, I, I think this is a question which is going to rear its head a lot more. And we're going to see the demand for paramedics increase for sure. I've had experience working on teams with, you know, with both setups where it's solely down to the medical skills of the guys on the ground and where you have somebody that is more skilled embedded in the team. And undoubtedly, it's a luxury, but, but it's a one that we all appreciate when you have that person on the team. It takes some of the pressure off you. And, you know, as Sean pointed out, medical skills fade fast and we need to keep them not, not just refresh our courses and our quals, but actually practice the skills, constantly be doing that. And if you've got somebody on the team who can lead that, who can drive that, then of course, it's going to be to the benefit of everyone. So for the principal, yeah, you've got the paramedic there. And if there's a problem, they can be in there. But actually, you're going to also have a more highly skilled and more proficient team as a result of that. I also think that that just in terms of 
having a niche, you know, increasing your marketability yeah. in the industry. If you've got, you know, those medical skills under your belt, Sean will tell you that, you know, every team needs one. So already, if all things are created equal, you're going to stand out in the pack. Absolutely. And, and you know, we're going to hear from Paul as to how to make this a little bit more attractive, I guess. But uh, Elijah, you know, especially in the States where, as you say, you know, some skills are maybe more attractive to be trained on because maybe they are more enjoyable. I don't know. I'm just putting that out there. How can we make these things more attractive for people to learn? Uh, employability is one, but, but are there any other angles? You know, I'm just a big fan of case studies. And if you take a look at, you know, how many times someone in our profession has had to use their firearm to protect their principal versus how many times someone in our profession has had to use medical skills in, in order to protect the principal. I mean, the, the deck is just stacked in one way versus the other. So, yeah, it's not as sexy, but it definitely is just as much, if not more so, useful. Let's hear from Paul Stewart, Platinum Oak, great contributor to the Circuit Magazine and many conferences you might have seen him at. It's going to be a great pleasure to hear from him. And now let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit Magazine. We're here with Paul Stewart, Managing Director of Platinum Oak, a close protection paramedic, medical and mental health trainer. It's a pleasure to welcome you on the podcast. How are you doing? Yes, very well, thank you. It's uh, nice to speak with you again. It's been a, been a couple of months, so good to be back. Always good to catch up. For, for, for those in the audience, uh, could you tell them a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, certainly. So uh, in terms of medical background, I've been a, a NHS frontline paramedic for just over a decade uh, and clinical mentor uh, and also had quite a, a footprint in the private sector as well. So uh, large events, air shows, uh, political events and the like. So uh, I've seen quite early on there's a, there's a big gap in, in terms of the close protection side and executive protection. And I've spent the last five to 10 years really trying to, to bridge that gap and, and introduce the, the benefits that can be bought from professional healthcare provision uh, into the executive and, and close protection arenas. So as well as the frontline experience I have, um, I've been medical bronze liaison for, for NATO summits. I've advised ultra high net worths. Uh, more recently, we've been providing kind of COVID response and up to critical care level response should it be needed for some uh, for some clients. So it's, it's really a, an interesting time to be involved in this medical place protection, if you like. It is indeed. It's flavor of the month, uh, you know, for various reasons, which everyone is, of course, very much aware. Uh, well, we're here with uh, John Moss and Sean West and, and, and myself. We're going to go through a series of questions to tease out some of the peculiarities and intricacies of what's going on at the moment. Uh, John, over to you. Hi, Paul. Great to have you here. One of the things that the circuit really tries to focus on is training, development, improvement, particularly as it relates to gap training. That's always been something that we focused heavily on. With that said, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit where you see the current skills gaps in the physical and corporate security world. Um, I think really there, there are kind of two main focuses for this. Um, firstly, there are the, the physical medical skills, um, but then also uh, there's also the consideration around planning and almost a needs analysis as to what can we do in the here and now? And at what point, if we do need to go to that next level of care, um, do we have ready access to that and a plan 
for that. So I would say in terms of uh, the, the physical skills, um, there's actually a reasonably good standard now, I would say, in terms of what's expected of uh, an EP or CP professional. Um, whilst the SIA minimum standard um, is probably a little lower than we would like, I think it's fairly mainstream now that we would consider something like the FREC courses or the, or the first person on scene courses to be kind of the, the baseline industry standard. Um, so actually in terms of dealing with that initial kind of catastrophic bleeds or that, that immediate trauma intervention, uh, I think we, we've come a long way and actually that's a really positive step. I think probably where the, the gaps are at the moment are perhaps in the, the less explosive emergency, if you like, the more medical emergencies, um, whether that's seizure or severe breathing difficulties. In that case, it's still a case of identifying it and pretty much immediately calling for that professional support. We haven't got the capabilities yet to kind of immediately support that medical emergency um, in the same kind of way. And also more routine things. So what do we do if the client needs to go to hospital or if they've got a procedure? Does it have to be done at the clinic or can we do it at home? I think in the uh, in the context of kind of the, the planning stages, um, again, professional teams are very good at making sure their own every operative has a good base level uh, and are more and more um, bringing in uh, professional medics or paramedics or, or doctors. Um, but we do a, a lot of preparation for what might happen and invest in what might happen. There's still a, a, a lag in terms of what do we do if this actually happens? And we see that both in the private and the public sector uh, with royalty, diplomats, um, where we've had teams on occasion that I've spoken to who have not got the kit they need or have elected to remove kit because they haven't been able to invest, exactly as you say, in the training to maintain competent use of that kit. Um, so I think those are probably the, the, the main areas. I'd say the three broad considerations for anyone on a team considering this uh, a kind of broad awareness of what's going on what are your actual risks whether that's your targeted trauma or poisoning um, pandemic risks but also your general general kind of medical and, and trauma risks whether that's emergency or urgent mitigation considerations so how are you going to analyze what you need in terms of kit and training um, robust biosecurity at the moment and, and monitoring that um, and having a generally good awareness of your your clients medical needs and then preparation of needs so when where does your current capability end and how can you either extend that within the team or have a trusted provider um, should you need to outsource that um, a bit more broadly? Yeah, I would agree with pretty much all of that, Paul. Uh, it's certainly been my experience that the baseline of training in the CP world is actually at a pretty good standard. And there's certainly enough courses out there. Uh, it's not like you need to go digging or do any vast research to be able to find good, high standard, basic training out there interested in a few of the things that you were saying there about what we can do, how we can take our own training further and fill in the gaps where, you know, that baseline finishes and the specific requirements of our principles kicks in. And in your experience, is that something that is highlighted by the protection agent and they go looking to fill those gaps? Or do you think that should be uh, something that's done by the, the family office or the the uh, security body itself. Where do you see the responsibility there? 
Uh, I think actually that's that's a, a really valid and, and kind of critical appreciation of the situation. That whilst we're talking in an executive protection or close protection context, a, a principal or a client doesn't necessarily associate their medical and health well-being and protection with the security. I think quite often that is viewed in in two separate silos, if you like. Um, so often that comes from kind of your uh, the PAs or, or family members who are reaching out to try and secure that medical expertise or to, to undergo procedures and then forms a security team to kind of catch up with it. Whereas I think we are starting to see a bit more of a dynamic shift towards kind of proactive protection professionals um, genuinely seeing the health and well-being of their clients as a primary concern of the security team. It's no longer just the security team uh, premise to, to stop physical attacks or reputational attacks. Um, pandemic has shown us that, but actually I'm, I'm quite keen to not get too embroiled in just the pandemic. For years we've been saying, what happens when the principal has chest pain. You've got all these hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds worth of security considerations. And the first thing you do is dial 999, 911, 112, um, and have complete strangers turn up in an unvetted vehicle, start giving drugs to your client that you have no idea what they are, and potentially drive them away to a clinic with none of you on board. So to me, it's actually a fairly significant bubble burst, if you like, at that point of need. So absolutely, as you say, should be the consideration of the security professionals, but will likely, and until things really kind of uh, move on, will likely and essentially require close liaison with the, with the PAs and with the family themselves until their um, mindset changes as to where that belongs. Yeah, yeah. The real challenge there is getting the PAs or getting the principals to be upfront with the current uh, medical condition of the clients and allowing for that training to take place. But yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement. Medical training as part of the CP team is, you know, it's one of the most important facets of keeping our principals safe. It's not just reputational management or protecting them from physical harm, but the medical area is somewhere where you get great skill feed amongst teams. So all of the teams, you know, I work with, I know John's worked with me a long time, and all of the guys on the CP teams, they refresh their skills on a yearly basis and they do ongoing training also. I know the standard the city frack, I believe, is once every three years. Yes. Um, recommendation for it annual but the yeah. requirement is only every three years yeah you're absolutely right yeah, i mean we, we like to do you know a full you know refresher every year like just a refresher train the full course again just to keep the guys current because there is a lot of skill feed there with that in mind how can we develop the competency of corporate security to understand the medical requirement as part of a risk assessment um, I think first and foremost, as you've said there, it, there is a vast difference between people who are just achieving the minimum standards to exist and those who are taking this seriously and actually understand you do need to maintain this training, um, as with anything, to avoid that skill fade. Um, I think to an extent, actually, as, as healthcare professionals, um, there's some work that, that I or we can do um, to kind of discern what actually is the difference between a medic and a healthcare professional. Because I think and there's almost an expectation, certainly within the public, if you're in green and you're on an ambulance, then you're a paramedic, which is, is not the case anyway. But also, I think as, as a paramedic, I can sometimes fall into the trap of assuming knowledge in security teams. So what to me seems like an obvious gap actually is, is one that simply hasn't been kind of identified. So I think... Um, one of the big things we can do uh, is to essentially try and assist security managers in understanding just what those gaps are and what the risks entail. Um, and I probably would be viewed as having a fairly 
biased opinion of this, but um, I truly believe that any kind of serious protection manager um, should have a professional healthcare advisor um, so they can steer the right kind of assessments, um, not only for the individual and for, for the team, but for the area they are operating in. So I've, I've just come back from Lebanon, for example, doing some training. Um, the considerations and the available resources there are vastly different to what you would find in, in London, for example. But even within the UK, there are differences, but you can't expect people to know that. So I think if you can engage with a professional healthcare expert and advisor, you cover the whole gambit from the, the, the analysis, the training and kit provision. But also, if you do have to call upon someone because you think there's a risk in an event, so you want that paramedical doctor there, or you have a longer term care concern, you've already got that relationship, you've got that trust. And critically, it's not just a healthcare provider, but it's a an executive protection um, expert healthcare provider. It's, it's merging those two worlds rather than them continuing to be silo working and, and completely separate elements that only come together when the need arises. I think integration of those two functions is is absolutely paramount. No, totally agree. I mean, we have within the, the teams we work with, on one of the teams I work, we have a, he hasn't quite reached the paramedic level yet, and we don't have a paramedic on the team, but the onus is placed on him to be in charge of the med kit, the equipment, making sure guys training is in date. So whilst it hasn't merged completely with the full healthcare professional, but I think within every team, yes, you should have someone who's a higher level of training and medical awareness who can keep on top of that and keep the guys up to speed and ensure everything's tickety-boo. Yeah, and I think actually, as you say there, kind of having that on-the-ground medical lead is, is invaluable, but it's sometimes perhaps missed that we can do a lot to support that person even without physically being there. With the developments within telemedicine, um, so that, we, I mean, we can live monitor a client of ours anywhere in the world with the, with the devices we have, you've got a more experienced kind of expert eye on the ground, our eyes and ears. We can then offer advice and we can give examples of what they might be able to do, which is outside their normal experience, but they are competent to deliver that and have the um, confidence to deliver that, knowing that they have their own healthcare professional advisor giving them that advice by telephone, by communication. Um, and uh, as kind of John alluded to yesterday, looking at or earlier, sorry, those, those gaps in what we can look to develop. There are courses in terms of administering life-saving medications. So if your client has a condition, you've got your physician's prescriptions to have the medication there and you've been trained to administer it, you can have robust support yourself to go that extra step beyond your baseline training, but within a very safe and robust governance structure. Yeah, I think what you've just said there as well would give the operator a lot of confidence. So when an incident happens, you know, it's the fight or flight mode, the rabbit caught in the headlights. If you've got that point of contact, you can call, this has just happened. This kid on me, this is the vital statistics, blah, blah, blah. They can feed that to you and you can take, you know, their mind's going to be running all over the place. But if you can calm that situation down and give the advice, they can get the situation back under control. Certainly. And, and we're fairly used to that, actually, in, in a kind of a maritime or an aviation setting. We're quite used to using telemedicine, to using advice from professionals remotely because we have no other choice. And I think sometimes if we translated that mindset into uh, kind of residential properties, being within uh, a country, um, and have that same mindset that you can still be self-sufficient. You don't just need to put up the flare and get strangers running through the door. You can have that degree of confidence and support anywhere which either means you don't need to go to a healthcare facility at all, or if you do, it's a much more managed and um, security-aware process to achieve that end goal. 
Paul, uh, can I can I pick you up on that then? Because if we assume that we have people on tap through telemedicine, what the pandemic may have shown us is that some people have rashly or maybe not rashly reached for embedding a proper MD into their team or a complete paramedic team into their team as an ultra high net worth individual. Was that a knee jerk reaction? Is that a trend? Is it advisable? Um, and how do we balance that with using your own skills when, in fact, you do have telemedicine on tap? So I think probably uh, there's an element of both. Um, I certainly think given what we were perhaps expecting and to a degree are now uh, very conscious will be happening, embedding a, a paramedic or an MD is is uh, a valuable consideration. I think sometimes what we, again, in terms of education here is um, it's not just a case of are they a doctor? It's what kind of expertise does that person have? So as a paramedic, I am a, a specialist generalist, if you like. I have to be able to recognize, manage, and, and refer on anything. So having a specialist cardiologist is great if you're having a heart attack, not much use in a car crash. So unless it's a, a pre-hospital or an emergency department or a, a pre-hospital critical care doctor, that's a speciality within itself, which is relevant to your needs. Um, actually, at the moment, I think it's a big step to completely transfer the responsibility of your client's health to a new organisation. And, and we appreciate that with the conversations we've had. Families have their personal physician for years years, decades, and perhaps even generations. But actually, if we can align with those, have those uh, kind of professional discussions with that family physician so that they are um, fully aware of the, the history of the client and the client has their trust, but we can expand what's able to be done with the client anywhere, even if the physician is not there. It's an addition to that service rather than a replacement. In time, of course, and if, if budgets were to allow, I think those with the capability will seriously consider having um, embedded paramedics or at least on, on the telephone to, to ring up for advice. Um, but in terms of a, an MD, yes, they have a place, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see where this transition happens between um, starting afresh with, uh, with a doctor and what scope or skill set that doctor has, because the, the professional physician as a GP has the greatest breadth of knowledge without the specialism, um, whereas your specialist is only relevant to that circumstance. So it's a fascinating concept um, to have. Absolutely, because we, we, we sort of saw that anecdotally in March-April time when people required things that they might require from a far-flung country in a rather modern Western country. Yes, and, and we were part of that. I mean, we were um, bridging that gap, essentially. We were um, firsthand very uh, conscious of, of what the link would be with the already in existence physician. Um, but sometimes, again, with, with the pre-hospital scares, it's not just even a paramedic, but you need the paramedic with also the critical care access, with the, the knowledge and understanding of using ventilators if need be, but also having our kind of inline support with consultant anaesthetists, with pre-hospital uh, consultants. Um, so you really do have that, that robust process in place. So get what you're saying there about embedded paramedics, retained GPs and physicians and so on. Um, moving on from that level of care into thinking about it more generally, what, and, and, and also I'm aware that you said you don't want to get pulled too heavily into the pandemic here. And I, and I understand that as well. And as soon as we start uh, overtraining for one thing or overfocusing on one area, we'll end up with, with skill fade and we'll, we'll miss other areas. So I get that. But given the situation as it is at the moment, what can we do moving forward to be better prepared 
so that we're not caught out if we find ourselves in a similar situation again with a virus. I think it's a well-worded question because you haven't said intentionally, what do we do about the coronavirus? What do we do with COVID-21, for example? Um, and that's really valuable because actually, other than the specific vaccines, a lot of the considerations around um, either trying to avoid or, or dealing with this kind of pandemic um, would be applicable to any virus, to any kind of contagion. It's, it's baseline actions which would be applicable in any situation rather than just COVID-19 at the moment. Um, I think one of the big things that has come out of this is kind of your um, continuous consideration for your bio bubble. So whether you actually moving forward do have greater consideration for interactions between a client and um, those immediately around them and necessarily so, but those wider afield. So at the very highest ends in terms of um, kind of government leaders that is in place in some circumstances and was prior to this testing of staff and, and just no interaction with the public. Perhaps we do need to, to look at a different approach in terms of hy- uh, hygiene and social distancing and we forever move away from the handshake, the kisses on the cheek, the, the rope lines, because that, that's a concrete mitigation that you can put in place to try and minimise that. That risk. So I think in uh, instilling that in people um, more generally would probably be a very, very valuable thing to take forward um, because it doesn't have to be a contagion. It doesn't have to be a pandemic. Um, they can catch the flu. They can catch diarrhea and vomiting from that person they've shaken hands with. So either preventing that or having very robust kind of hand hygiene uh, considerations thereafter. From the planning stage, I think we we are better prepared now, um, but we, we need kind of robust immediate actions for if we see um, in two, three, four years time, um, another upsurge in a potential virus, it's going to be acting far more quickly to lock that residence down, lock that business down and stop the the ins and outs from a much earlier point. Um, And similarly, what to do if your client does become symptomatic, because that is relevant today, tomorrow, next month, next year. What are you actually going to do if, if the client shows symptoms or has been exposed to someone with symptoms? Do you treat them in situ? Do you take them to a nominated facility? And, and what degree of control do you have over that? Yeah, I, I love uh, that you can use a term like bio-bubble and it doesn't catch me out. None of us are laughing. We all know exactly what a bio-bubble is now. And, and that's an interesting point that you just highlighted there with what do we do going forward. And I think that our exposure to this pandemic has created baseline understanding of how to deal with something like this that I'm sure not a lot of us will forget in a hurry. So yeah, it, it does make you think that lessons can be learned from this and can be put into practice moving forward. You did highlight a couple of things there, such as um, handshaking, uh, you, you know, the kiss on the cheek and and that sort of stuff. And it, and it just made me realize how much of these things are actually really cultural and, and really deeply embedded and, and probably will take a, a little bit more work, I, I would imagine, to replace. I'm not sure if the fist bump is here to stay for all of the high net worth yet. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. I guess only time will tell on that one. Fantastic. Well, I love it. Uh, bio bubble, fist bump, uh, lots, lots of terminology we're all, we're all getting used to. Um, of course, this is not Ebola at the moment, and we have to plan for all sorts of viruses and health considerations. So I'm, I'm pleased that we did a tour de force around the whole topic because, of course, uh, somebody might listen to this podcast in uh, a year's time and there might be some new thing and 
they're equally applicable. But of course, you know, we need to do it, you know, case by case. Paul, what's what's next for you? Um, so next for me, I suppose, is uh, continuing to develop our, our kind of capabilities, particularly around the kind of the telemedicine and, and support for clients, because I think actually that's going to be a really um, emerging um kind of expertise if you like and uh, and something that people will look for in the same way that people have gone through the the ideas of i want a super yacht now i want six super yachts okay that's getting boring now i want a submarine and a helicopter and um, we are actually at a point now where people are are very seriously considering medical facilities within their own residence or, or what can be achieved on their own aircraft rather than calling in an aeromedical evacuation use the assets you already have so those are some really interesting projects uh, moving forward and continue with the, the clients we have and, and some training in there as well. So it's uh, I won't be getting bored anytime soon. Fantastic. Well, uh, Paul, and of course, our hosts, uh, Sean and John, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Great to see Paul. Love his articles and love that interview. Uh, medical skills, especially in this time, very, very important. Of course, should we embed uh, an MD? Should we embed a paramedic? Should we just improve our own skills? Uh, and of course, that old adage, you know, your medical kit is no good in the boot, out of sight, out of mind. Um, Sean, is this going to just explode after COVID or, or, or is this a pretty much, uh, you know, COVID topic? No, I don't think medical skills is COVID related. You know, in EP, the whole history of EP, it's, it's one of the biggest skills you can have. You know, you're trying to keep a principal safe. You know, if he has a heart attack, you can't keep him alive. You're not doing your job. It's one of them skills that you need to constantly refresh. And as Paul said, you know, skill fades. We need to keep on top of it. Keep the team. If we can't have a paramedic in the team because budgets don't allow, all team members should be constantly refreshing their training. And ideally, within a team, certainly if you can't have a paramedic, at least nominate a guy, you know, who is in charge of the medical kit, checking the oxygen, when does it need changing out, what kit needs updating, replacing, upgrading, and keeping on top. If nobody's doing it, then it'll go by the wayside. So definitely look to appoint someone on your team to stay on top of that. Well, I, I also think, uh, you know, this episode kind of illustrated the importance of, of this skill set and how it makes you invaluable to a team. So just in terms of selection, if you have this under your belt and you can market this, you know, every team that, again, has the budget that would allow for it would, would look at picking you up. So so the higher up that ladder can go in terms of advancing your medical skills, I mean, it, it, it's a win. So um, I think this is a good episode. Yeah, for sure. CP trained paramedic and most have. Yeah, we've got a lot of friends out there actually on that particular career path. Um, a lot of friends on the BBA Connect app uh, also talking about that. It's really good news. Um, what else? What have we got coming up? Uh, obviously, we've just had a great uh, CP Tech Forum and uh, people are you know, joining the uh, BBA Connect app. Uh, wh what else have we got uh, on the horizon? I just think the big thing that we need to be uh, talking about is this uh, podcast right here. And uh, as, as the word start get, starts getting around and people start seeing the great guests that we have on here, uh, I think it's just going to blow. And so all you early adapters, I want to thank you very much. Uh, but I also want to have you guys like, subscribe and share and, uh, and make sure you just get the word out for us. Awesome. Well, let's leave it there. We'll see you next week from Sean, Elijah and myself. This has been the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.